All right, I just, uh, I'm not going to say show me your hands if you're coming, but uh, I do want you just to right now register in your own heart whether or not you think you are being called to minister to other people around you. For four weeks, this week all the way through the conference week where we'll have uh, one of those uh, special speakers here on that morning uh, to wrap up this four-week series, we're going to be giving you the full court press. We believe that every single person that is a believer is called to minister. Amen? Amen. You are called to bless the people around you. We want to help make that uh, more, not, not just possible, but more profitable. We want to help you get to the right place. And we're going to build a case each week um, for you to begin to be involved at a higher level. Now, one of the questions that's going to come up at the very beginning is, well, how do I know if, uh, if it should be up to me or if I should just let the professionals handle it, right? Some people uh, need that question answered. There was a, a couple that was working through their living will, older couple, and uh, finally the guy just says, I want to go on record. If I ever end up in a vegetative state where I'm, I'm hooked up to an electronic box, I'm getting all my nutrients from a bottle, I just want you to unplug me. And she got up and turned off the TV and threw out the beer. <laughs> Sometimes you don't need a professional to make the diagnosis, right? But you might think that you need an invitation. What we're saying is for most of those who are desperate, in fact, for some of you in the room right now, and you're overwhelmed by life, and you're just here hoping that there's some answer that will be able to take you further than Monday. You're struggling, you're hurting, you're not the one that's going to speak up. You're saying, Lord, I need you to act. And the entire time, the Spirit of God is prompting somebody sitting next to you. What is stopping you from blessing them? What is stopping you from blessing them? If it's just, I don't know what to do, we can help you with that. But here's the implication of Scripture. You're already been, you've already been prepared for just such an interaction. 1 Thessalonians 5. I know I'm hitting you with the full court press right off the bat, right? You guys ready for this? Man, this is really fun, isn't it? Let's stand and read this together. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 24. We're going to go through 24. Here is a challenge given to us as believers Paul speaking here, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. You should esteem them highly in love because of the work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, now here is this desperate plea. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify or set you apart entirely. 
May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Do you believe that's true? You may be seated. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you would help us uh, to understand not only the expectation of Scripture, but our personal calling in the midst of it. You are asking us to get engaged with the people that are around us, to make discerning uh, decisions, wise decisions on their behalf, to bless them by the Spirit and the Word that you've given us. Father, help us not just to be capable of that, but to be eager to encourage those around. There is a desperate need in our day and age, and you do not want us on the sidelines. Help us to see that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In your notes, uh, in his book, Biblical Theology and the Life of the Church, Michael Lawrence says, a fellow elder of mine was recently having a lunch at a burger joint with a friend. This man had lost his job in the latest economic downturn, and his car had broken down just a few days before. Now he's looking at a savings account that was dwindling toward nothing. However, he had been listening to preachers on television, and they had promised that God would provide material blessings today if only he would have enough faith today. The friend quipped, you know, like in Deuteronomy, where God says that he will bless us in our homes and in our fields if only we follow him. You find that in Deuteronomy 28. How should my fellow elder have responded? Are those promises true for Christians? Can the unemployed Christian expect God will quickly provide a job if only the Christian can muster up enough faith? What about the barren couple, also highlighted in Deuteronomy 28? The one who longs for children. Should we say to them, you just need to believe and God will give you the child you long for? How would you respond to this wounded believer? Most Christians can spot bad counsel or even Job's counselors, but are you equipped to give wise counsel? Wise counsel requires good theology, a yielded spirit, and a devoted prayer life. Though it's all hard work, the fruit is tremendous. Will you join in? Once again, we're going to be giving you a press that uh, you have the ability as a believer to discern what is good counsel, what is bad counsel, to be able to share scripture and encourage another individual from a state of despondency to a place where they can get help. Uh, we are asking you to get involved in a world that is becoming more and more and more desperate. There are four truths over these four weeks uh, that, that are going to be sitting over every single week. I want you to understand these. These are assumptions we're making to the morning, based partly on what we taught this summer in Second uh, Peter 1. The first thing is this. Every spirit-led believer is called and empowered to encourage others. You are literally, when it comes to the church, you were made to minister. The Spirit of God has given every single one of you a gift the moment that you were saved. Doesn't wait till later, till you can be verified as a Christian. Doesn't wait until your gifts kind of emerge and they says, oh, okay, you know what? You know what? This one's kind of tweaking that direction. Let's give him this gift. God doesn't wait until that point. At the very moment you were saved, there's a supernatural gift that you were given that you might use that among his people. And the first question is, are you responding to the Spirit of God and using your gifts in the body? You were made to bless other people. A second assumption that's sitting in the room here for each of these messages is that everything a believer needs to be successful in the Christian life is already in their possession. 
Everything you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 says, is already yours because of the blessing of God, because of the activity of God, because he has filled you up. He already has given you the ability to respond. A third assumption that's going to be sitting in the room is this. The fact that we are made to minister or called to bless each other does not imply that specialists are unimportant any more than learning first aid will replace doctors. Did you get that? So you may be here today and part of a professional counseling job. That, That may be your actual job. We are not saying that professional counseling is unnecessary or that there's no room for psychiatrists in our world. What we're saying is, if all you have are specialists and then no graduation up until that point, our world is going to be in trouble and those specialists are going to be overwhelmed, right? If all we do is look at people and say, well, I'm not a doctor, you're going to leave a lot of struggling people on the, in the world surface. If you're out at the playground and you refuse to bring band-aids, that's not wisdom, that's just negligence right? you got to come prepared. And the final assumption in the room is that the call to care is a call to prepare. It's not just an emotional thing that you should look around and say, oh yeah, that's really sad. It is a call to prepare yourself to be part of the answer. Imagine right now in Salem, in a dire situation where mental health is uh, listed by some as being at a a full-born crisis right now. Imagine if over the next four weeks, a thousand energized people were out there just to be encouragers and discerners and blessers in our community. Do you think that would flavor the experience that they have in our city? What kind of a difference could be made if people just looked with eyes that cared and said, I'm going to get them to the Savior. That's what I'm going to ask you to consider this morning. Why? Because the need for counsel is not new, and it is not going away. Let me just share a couple of statistics with you. Uh, Not to freak you out, but just to uh, help you wrap your mind around this. Um, Psychology Today did a study uh, of a whole bunch of different, um, they they compiled a whole bunch of data, and they said there are five things during Mental Health Awareness Month, that was in May uh, this last year, five things that you need to be aware of, and the top two I think are critical for us. The first one is mental illness is normal. Get this, according to the studies uh, that they compiled, which followed people from the ages of 11 through 38 and tracked their mental health over a period of years, a mere 17% avoided mental illness. 41% had mental health conditions that lasted for many years, and 42% had short-lived mental illness. This suggests that sooner or later, a mental illness becomes an issue for most people. Depression, anxiety, and substance abuse were the most common diagnosis in the study that would take people through those years of depression. Uh, a second thing that they highlighted in the top five things you need to know is that worldwide, de- the, the incidence of depression is the leading cause of disability. 
The World Health Organization, in their studies, found that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. What's more, it's held that place for many years. Even more troubling, they say, despite burgeoning awareness and the, the rate of depression is not getting better. In fact, uh, over the last few years, extreme poverty has dropped like 25 to 30 percent, but depression has gone up worldwide over 20 percent. Extreme poverty falling away. Extreme depression and discouragement on the rise. That's between 2005 and 2015. That's pretty significant. Well, that's, that's the world scene. I mean, that's not really impacting us, right? Let me just share from an article on student mental health in Oregon. It said, uh, just in Salem-Kaiser schools, um, there is a crisis. About one in five students nationwide, 20%, are affected by some kind of mental disorder to an extent that they have a difficulty functioning in school. Salem-Kaiser Public School rate is higher, closer to one in four in the district's nearly 42,000. The pervasiveness of mental health issues and child suicide rates leads Oregon to rank as the worst state in the country for mental illness. And the state's lack of child psychiatrists and school counselors leave families waiting for months to get help. They're estimating, now this is the way Oregon tallies the cost. This is incredible to me. They start with, well, $170 million of lost revenue through taxes from people who can't work. $200 million lost uh, it because of the cost of Medicaid. $37 million because of increased incarcerations. That's every single year. Across Oregon, there is one psychiatrist for every 10,000 kids. Now, that's taking that's entirety of Oregon. One for every 10,000 kids. The national average is one for 1,800. One counselor for every 600 students. That's in Salem-Kaiser. That's a counselor, not psychiatrist. One counselor to help. Here's what I'm going to tell you, folks. Us just putting our head in the sand and not reaching out to our neighbor and becoming more isolated and clicking away on our phones and focusing on our computers and driving from one place to another and having our little specialty moments, our away time, disconnecting from the world where we're becoming successful at not engaging. And the world is breaking. Their hearts are aching. They're desperate for something that is a bigger connection. And we, as believers, have the answer. Amen? Our heart should be looking out at our neighbors that are desperate for connection and say, can I come alongside you? The need for counseling is not going away, but a second thing I want you to see is that the Scripture's response to our pain is as layered and varied as the human experience. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, uh, hey, we're appreciating the pastors and leaders, but I'm talking to you as a congregation. Notice that, verse 14. It says, but we urge you, believers, the church, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everything. Four different uh, experiences that are highlighted here. Admonish 
The unruly, literally it has the idea of causing them to stop or forcing them to get back in line. And it's, uh, the idea uh, was used out of a marketplace of some people that were getting unruly or knocking over carts or creating a disturbance. And it says somebody needs to go to them and say, hey, knock it off. Here's how you act in an orderly way so that everybody can get along. Some people just need a gut check. Isn't that true? You know somebody right now? Just nod your head if you know somebody that just needs a little set to Okay? You know somebody. They're being unruly, and they don't just need you to come up and love on them and, you know, butter their bread and take care of all their happiness. They need you to shake them by the shoulders really quick and say, hey, knock it off. You're getting all the elephants in an uproar. It's going to create a problem. Admonish them. But it has also uh, encourage. Look at this second group. So you have one group of people that need a good shoulder shake, but the next one is encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted, literally, those people who are small-souled. The wick inside them has shrunken down, and they have lost their ability to face the world. What does it say, encourage? It's a different word than is used with uh, parakaleo in other places. It's used for the Holy Spirit and also for believers to come alongside. This is actually a word that means to come alongside them with stories. Hey, this person went through that exact same thing. Let me show you what it is that they actually experienced. Hey, let me tell you about a time in Scripture where this happened or where that happened. It means to come alongside them and encourage them that they can make it forward. Small-souled people are here this morning. You're going to go out after this service. You're going to face a world that's increasingly cold, increasingly dark, increasingly fearful, and you need somebody to come alongside you and say, do you know what? Here is a champion that survived, or here is somebody that was in your spot, or here is a scenario that is similar to yours, and this is what God did. And you come alongside them and encourage them with a story and strengthen their heart and tell them, I'm going to walk with you. They don't need a shoulder shake. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer. They need somebody to get alongside them and say, I'm going to tell you that you can make it. But there's a third category here. It says also help the weak. To help is literally, this Greek word means to remain in a face-to-face situation. There are some people who have gotten themselves into such a sinful place, they need FaceTime all the time. Do you know that? FaceTime all the time. Anybody here say amen to that? You know it. There are times where you've made a decision or you've been around somebody that's made a decision and you just know they need proximity for a period of time. This isn't going to be for the rest of their life. We're not asking you to join into a new codependent relationship. We're asking you to come alongside somebody who is so deep in the pit, every single turn they make is the wrong turn. They're just going to go out the door and turn hard right into trials. You get right in there and it says remain in a face-to-face relationship with them. Get them. Be in the buddy method. I'm going to walk with you through the next five weeks of sobriety. I'm going to walk with you through this next trial and temptation. I'm going to walk with you to your job and the scenario that you are facing and help you interact with those people that are uh, causing this great struggle. They need face-to-face time. They don't just need an encouraging story. They don't need you to stoke their fire. They need you to get right in the yoke with them and every day take the step in front of them so they know where to step. Different experiences. Do not shake that person by the shoulder. You bless them with your presence. But finally, it says be patient with everyone. This is a word for our generation, isn't it? 
Can you imagine that as a bumper sticker? Be patient with everyone. How many honks do you think you would get with that? <laughs> right? You should put that on, the, on your back. You know, there should be, uh, we've got our uh, Hope Dealer guys here. We should be, pe- be patient with everyone. Put that on our back when we're at the grocery store and they're in a hurry. In the express line with 35 items. Why does it say be patient? Because it turns out in the last 2,000 years, this is one character trait of humans that has not changed. We are impatient. I want you to note that we tend to be reductionistic. We tend to just say there's a one-size-fits-all answer, and this is my personality. I just like to be honest, right? I'm a shoulder shaker. So I'm going to go out there, I'm going to grab somebody, I'm going to say, you need to get it right, right? And it's a rah-rah-ree for a moment, go get them, and then you release them. And they walk out and they're like, man, that great, that felt really awkward, but I, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know where I'm going to go, I don't have any idea, has this happened before? I needed an entirely different thing. We, by nature, are reductionistic. I was listening to one pastor walk through this, and he said, I just went to the bookstores, and I began to look for the varying experiences that people have, emotional challenges that they face. And he says, some were coming from a fitness angle, some were coming from a, a, a food intake angle, some were take, talking about technology, some were talking about physical uh, problems that are there, but every single one of them reduced all of life's problems down to their little set of values, and then they were able to say, now if you tackle this, you'll conquer it. I was telling the office staff, I, I read about this gal, and, and everybody was all excited because she had lost all of this weight. And in the, the story that she was highlighting, she said about herself, when I was little, my parents had gone through a horrible divorce. I'd gone through all of these trials, all of these significant things had happened to me, and I had a bad problem with food, and so now I'm getting older, and uh, now I've conquered this problem with food. And everyone's going, you go get them, you look great, and you're amazing, right? As if being thin has solved the internal ache that actually drove her to that place in the first place. I'll say, I might have ran to food. Now I'm just literally running. Is that really better? We tend to reduce everything down to one description or one idea or something that we've all leveled and said, man, that really looks attractive. That must be the answer. But unless the soul is transformed and the body is healed and there is hope, you do not have transformation. We are much more complicated Every single person sitting here has a completely different experience in the world than the person sitting next to them. You look through your lens, your eyes, your heart, your relationship with God is unique. If we have a one-size-fits-all answer for everybody in this room, we will miserably fail you. We'll fail you. Scripture doesn't have a one-size-fits-all answer. In fact, it agrees that pain has many components and many causes. Um... I'm just going to hit this, this one thought. I'm going to encourage you to look some of these up on your own. Uh, Tim Keller, when he was uh, working through the Proverbs series a short while ago, <coughs> highlighted five different uh, causes of internal pain, a crushed spirit that are highlighted in the Proverbs. He was looking at Proverbs 14, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 28, and Proverbs 18, and he said this. He said, uh, when your soul is crushed, it can have a physical cause. 
The idea that uh, we begin to um, take a look at the world around us and we think that it's all just internal. He says uh, in um, Proverbs 18.4, the spirit of a man can endure sickness, but a broken spirit who can bear. You actually can have internal strength enough to face hardship, a broken leg, to face cancer, to deal with pain, to deal with uh, external struggles. You can actually do that. But if your spirit is broken, it'll actually crush you and take your body down with it. We are addicted to the idea that if we just get all of our physical things taken care of, all of our physical standards lifted up, if we can just take care of things so that our, our world is happier, then we'll be happier. And that has never been the case. You can be physically okay, but be crushed in your spirit and not be able to get through the day. You can be physically destroyed, but have your spirit so strong, you always lift people up when they come to see you. Have you seen that? What's going on inside is of critical importance. It can have a physical component. Um, just was uh, reading a part of that mental health awareness. They were doing a study of chemotherapy. And they discovered that chemotherapy can actually lead to depression. It can actually create an experience where your body just begins to uh, experience depression as a result of treatment. There is a physical cause, something that's happening to you that is creating that experience. They also did this study uh, with the thyroid. There is a depression that can happen because of something that's going on inside of you, and you can't control the emotions that are coming out. Now, it might be in your head that you're struggling, but there is a chemical component. Physically, there is a result. It's not just that there's a physical component to a broken spirit. There's also emotional causes. There are moral causes. If it has been your experience that you chronically are in patterns of sin, it may be that you arrive in church today and you're instantly looking around saying, I don't want any of those people judging me, right? And even if nobody in the room is judging you, and I'm going to say here, nobody is judging you, all right? We love you. Come as you are. Come in your state. We love you. But you may not receive that. Why? Because there are decisions that you've been making in your life on a regular basis, and you are condemning you. Jesus is here to set you free from that. He's already forgiven all the sin it says and wiped all of that garbage away. He has wiped it clear, but you won't receive it if there is a sin sickness, if you keep going that direction. There can also be an existential cause. Uh, it says that even in laughter, the heart is sick. He says, don't just blow that off. He said, when you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table, he says, you're going to come to the sudden awareness someday that every single person around that table someday will be dead. That's super uplifting, isn't it? <laughs> huh? That's a Thanksgiving thought. Everybody dies. And the issue is, what are you doing to attach your life to something far greater than just living? Do you have a source for that significance? Does your life have purpose and meaning outside of the 70, 80, or 90 years that you potentially have? If not, you'll be in an existential crisis. You're just going to be overwhelmed and say, what is the purpose? And depression will set in. But also there is a faith component. Pain has many components, many different layers. Only Scripture sees the person as complicated. There isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. And only Scripture provides ultimate purpose. Verses 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you entirely. He says, may God, who is the bringer of peace, be the one that sets you aside. For what? That your spirit, soul, and body might be preserved complete without blame until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us are passing through. There's coming a day where there will no longer be any tears, no longer any fear. We are looking forward to that day of redemption. Amen? And he is going to come and he's going to put everything right. But until then, he says, may the God of peace bless you and use you in the lives of others. That's your purpose. That's what you're here for. That's why he left you here. It's not to make money. It's not to be happy. If he wanted you to have perfect happiness and all your stuff, uh, have perfect relationships and be in perfect bliss, he'd have taken you straight to heaven. He left you here to be salt and light and make a difference for a season. That's why you're here. And he says, suit up. Finally. I know I'm just getting ramped up. I want you to notice something in this passage. It says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord. All right? Pastors and teachers, separate category. But we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly. Notice, he says, hey, thanks for some of the the teachers that are there, but I'm talking to the church here. He's trying to make a separation saying, I'm not talking to a professional group. I'm not talking to a group of people that are called to be uh, teaching about these things. I'm calling the average individual, anyone who calls himself believer. You are to care for others. And he gives you the categories of concern that are in the room. You are called to care and to prepare. Taking care of others matters to God. I want you to hear this. I just, uh, on Friday, I was out with my dad, and he was uh, telling me of a pastor friend of ours down in Roseburg, Paul from Sutherland Family, had shared an illustration out of Luke 5, and it just hit me right away. In Luke 5, 17, it says, One day Jesus was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but they couldn't find any way to bring him in because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof, and they led him down through the tiles on a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Later on, verse 24 And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck. Why? God was at work. I want to do something really quick. There was a few guys that had said that they would come and uh, help me out. Would you come help me out right now? Because there's an emergency that has just happened in the church. A baby has fallen. Not the pastor's fault. Okay, there was a baby on the stage, and we need help right now, so I need you guys to grab this backboard here. I just need you to to get this baby on there and get it someplace healthy. Oh, there, oh, very good job. Way to help the neck. Okay, here we go. Now, Now, there's a question. You notice they're not going anywhere? All right, where is the physician? That's the question, right? Out that door in the back corner over there. Man, guys, doing so great. Baby's not even rocking off of there. Let's give them a hand as they take off. Back, oh man, well, I said that too soon. The baby nearly slipped off about the third row. 
Why is that important? I want you to imagine what it was like for those four men to grab a pallet and bring it to Jesus. Do you want to know what it required? It required these guys to come up here, and they actually had to come in front of all of you. Do you know that there were some people who maybe got invited and didn't want to do that? People get nervous in front of people. Second thing, did you notice that it takes some coordination? Somebody grabs that board, somebody with authority, somebody's going to say, okay, where are we headed? It takes coordination. Another thing I want you to know is you need to know where you are taking that child. You need to know where you are taking the individual that is receiving help. Just coming and running into a fire and saying, I'm here to help, and just sitting in the fire, not helpful. Okay? You're just adding to the damage that eventually other people are going to have to take care of. You need to know what the plan is. Helping others takes coordination. Scripture says that the Spirit of God and the Word of God will direct you. But there are things that we can learn. Do you believe that? You may think right now in your own personal inventory, just begin to work through and say, what would I do in a scenario where somebody is broken and sitting near me? The first thing you've got to do is say, I've got to go to the Lord and it can't all be up to me. Four people around that baby. Four people hanging on to that. Four people that are watching and making sure that everything happens. It took a group of individuals. Helping requires you to know where you are headed, but ultimately this is the thing that I think is in, in the way. We need to see that Christ is the one that does the real work. In, First Thessal or in uh, Luke 5, it says, and seeing, verse 20 of Luke 5, you can look it up, seeing their faith, he said to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. Do you know that that person next to you might actually have no idea how it is they're going to get right-headed? But God sees a group of people that are so concerned about getting it right for them and helping them out of the scenario that he blesses the effort and brings healing. He can give you the strength. Do you want to know why we're not taking people to Jesus? Why we're not running out into a world that is devastated right now? Into a mental health crisis in the sickest state in the union? You want to know what's holding us back? For some of us, it's because we don't really believe Jesus does anything. We need to start there. He is right now in the room prompting spirits to say, go and get active. You don't have permission to sit on the sideline. Amen? Amen. That is not your option. Amen could be a little stronger there. <laughs> you can't sit on the sideline. I'm not taking notes. I'm not taking your name down. This is between you and the Lord. But if you sit on the sidelines, you are not doing what God has called you, prepared you, impelled you to do. Your eyes have seen somebody who is broken, and you're called, grab some friends. God will bless the effort. You're not the expert. You're not replacing experts, but you know how to get people to the place where they can um, best be helped. I'm going to stop there this morning. We'll uh, pick there uh, next week. Let me just close with this. I'm hoping that some of you are feeling prompted to say, I need to be a part of a made-to-minister class. I need to know how it is I can sharpen my skills. 
one of those sessions to actually talk about how you can uh, interact with those that are struggling with suicide or do help out with suicide prevention, just even being aware of the mental health crisis and some of the things that Scripture has to say about helping those that are broken. Once again, we're not going to instantly give you a stethoscope and a lab coat and you're going to turn into the doctor in the room, all right? But we are asking you to learn first aid because there's a playground full of people bleeding and you can help assess, is this an emergency or can I come alongside? Our world needs us. Amen? Amen. To act like Christians and to apply the salve of the Word of God to broken hearts. Let's make sure that we're committed to it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. And over this four weeks, help us not just to be quickened for today, but Father, help us to be energized throughout the week. Have our eyes up looking for those that are hurting. And I pray, Father, for anyone here who says, man, I, I just need more information, more tools, more ability. Uh, help them, Father, as they sign up for Made to Minister, for the conference on that weekend, as they find out ways that they can be a practical help for those that are broken. I pray, Father, that you would help us not just to be informed, not just to be chosen by you, but, Father, help us to be used. Help us to engage in a broken world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.